0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Burge, and today I am just beyond honored to have our guest here with us today. He really needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Today we have Dr. Robert Kushner with us today, and he has a long, distinguished career as one of the most highly respected weight management experts in the world. So again, we are so excited to have him here today. He's the medical director of the Center of Lifestyle Medicine at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago and professor of medicine and medical education at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is the past president of the Obesity Society and founder of the American Board of Obesity Medicine, which uh, many of us are familiar with. This is the organization that certifies physicians in the care of patients with obesity, Board certified in internal medicine and nutrition, Dr. Kushner is a passionate clinician, educator, researcher and advocate in helping improve the lives of those affected by overweight and obesity. And he's a noted national and international speaker and he teaches healthcare professionals about both the science and the art of helping individuals lose weight, keeping it off and embracing healthier habits that fit their lives. So again, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Uh, Carly, that was a gracious introduction. Thank you very much. And it's my honor to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it doesn't even begin to cover everything that you've done. So, uh, But before we talk about all of these amazing uh, achievements in obesity medicine, there's something I wanted to ask you about on a personal note. So, I started doing ballroom dancing about a year and a half ago. (laughs) It was so much fun. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic, working a lot from home now, and I just felt like I needed to get out of the house and just have more joy in my life. And I've always loved dancing and music. And so I, I was like a little hesitant, but I was like, I'm just going to try this whole ballroom dancing thing. And so I got to ask you, so you and your wife, Nancy, have been doing ballroom dancing for a while. Is that right?
1: We have for nine years now. You know, Carly. Wow. first of all, I am thrilled to hear that you're doing it. Uh, <laughs> for, from my point of view, it checks off every box. First of all, you use the word joy, and that is probably number one. The other boxes are it's physically fit, it's social, uh, you develop a whole community of individuals with a common cause and a common interest. But the one one thing that strikes me more than anything is if you ask yourself what in the course of a day when you do something, that's all you do. You have to be 100% focused on that activity and your mind is not wandering on anything else because you can't do it. And that's ballroom dancing. I can't think of anything else I do in the course, including seeing patients that occasionally my mind wanders or I get a text or I think about my next patient. When you are dancing, you are in the moment 100% of the time while being physically active. And I love it. It has been a game changer for me and my wife.
0: Yeah, I love that you're doing it together as well. And you're so right and it it does it is challenging. And that's one of the things I I thought about too is I wanted to challenge myself mentally. Like you said when we've been doing something day after day and, and we're, you know, it, it really requires a whole different skill set and uh I've just really enjoyed it. So do you have a favorite dance or do you and your wife have a favorite?
1: Uh rhythm, dance? rhythm dancing, a little cha-cha, yeah. a little rumba, you know. <laughs> You know, uh, absolutely. Bachata. So all of those, it it is, it is wonderful and it's keeping us young. And I dance with individuals who are 30 years old to 80 years old. And that's something else that is really uh, uh, important for people to know. You can do it all the way to the end, as long as your feet stay healthy.
0: Yes, that's so true. And actually those are my favorite dances too. I love the (laughs) rhythm dances and the smooth dances they keep trying to get me to do. And I'm like, Nah, I just want to do the rhythm stuff and the Latin dances.
1: (laughs) I'm with you. I'll
0: get there eventually. (laughs) All right. Awesome. So, all right, let's dive into the obesity medicine stuff. So how did you become interested in the field of obesity medicine and how did you even find out about it?
1: Yeah, so I got interested in nutrition as a as a fourth year medical student. The AMA was offering stipends to get medical students interested in nutrition. I took that stipend went out to UC Davis in California, and I got I got really involved and thrilled with the area of diet and nutrition. So mm-hmm. stayed in that, did a fellowship in nutrition and a master's in nutrition. And it's really out of that world of diet and and eating and health. I got interested in obesity. I thought when I was coming out of my fellowship that obesity probably is one of the most common um, medical problems or, or health problems associated with with diet, uh, mm-hmm. excessive caloric intake and, and types of foods we're eating. So I kind of had a dual path of nutrition medicine, lifestyle medicine, and then obesity medicine eventually. And really, for the past two decades, for sure, if not longer, I've shifted almost entirely now to lifestyle medicine and obesity mentor, or lifestyle is the foundation of obesity medicine. So it's kind of rolled in together.
0: Absolutely. Were you finding, because this is some of the struggles that I was having early on in my career. My background was more in exercise physiology, and I also had a lot of interest in nutrition. Um, But when I was working in primary care, and this is before I knew about the field of obesity medicine, or before I really understood obesity as a disease, or before I understood all the hormones... And I found that I was trying to make these lifestyle changes with people and they were, they were making positive lifestyle changes, but just the weight, it just seems so difficult for people to lose the weight and then keep it off long-term, which is, I think, where kind of the field of obesity medicine comes in, you know, it's it's an adjunct to all those lifestyle changes, but allows people to to kind of stick to that nutrition plan better when they're not hungry all the time, when it can help them with that appetite regulation. is Is that kind of what you found too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It just filled in. I want to add another thing, though, as I think about obesity education. I know we're going to be talking about that. They used to say, if you know syphilis, you know medicine. And then you say, if you know diabetes, you know medicine. These are old timers, I would say. I think now, if you know obesity, you know medicine because you understand genetics, epidemiology, behavioral science, physiology, biology pharmacokinetics, and so forth. It has everything, and it has the whole idea of social connection and, and helping people feel better. As you, as you well know, we see people that lose a tremendous amount of body weight, a little or a tremendous amount. It really changes their life, the trajectory of their life, and it's so rewarding. So yeah. lifestyle medicine is foundational, and I apply that knowledge to helping people become healthier, uh, in part uh, by losing weight, getting their health under control.
0: Yeah, and I love that. I love that that was your focus, and that still is your focus. I think sometimes, especially these days, maybe we get a little too focused on the pharmacotherapy, and I worry sometimes that the lifestyle part will kind of go to the wayside, and people will just focus on the pharmacotherapy. But like you said, there's there's that's really the root cause, and there's so many health benefits that we get from all the lifestyle and just. Quality of life, you know. Uh it, it's more, it's more about than just, you know, having the lab values or or things like that. It's really mm-hmm. that quality of life. And as you said, you know, we can really change our patients' lives in such a positive way by focusing on their lifestyle, on a, a healthier weight. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. And, and as you said, you know this is not often taught in in medical school and in our medical training. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and talk about medical education because I know that's something that you're really involved with. And so, first question I'd like to ask: so back in 2015, uh, you and others, including Scott Butch and Scott Kahan and Lou Aroni, uh, you perform an assessment of the obesity coverage on the USMLE or the, the US Medical Licensing exams, the STEP exams. So tell me, like, why did you guys decide that you wanted to do an assessment of the board exam? And, and what did you find?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Back then, we were thinking about, we need to change the landscape of obesity education. And it was very clear to us, anyone involved in education knows that because we've all been students at one time, we basically, we asked what's on the exam because I know how to spend my time. So we said, well, let's go and find out what's on the exam. So we yeah. have some, you know, we have some motivation to, to either change the exam or tell the students, hey, this is going to be on the exam. We need, to, we need to improve our curriculum. So the uh, USMLE, which you mentioned about, which is the organization that provides these step exams for medical students, were gracious enough to give us a day and a half in Philadelphia to look at the exam. So they pulled all the items that had obesity or BMI in the, in the item, you know, in the stem of the, of the mm-hmm. item. Uh, and we reviewed them and we, you know, we compared and we each, did each, each, each item was reviewed by two people and so forth. What we found was really uh, in part surprising and some not surprising Um not surprising was that a minority of the items that were coded for obesity really were teaching the right thing. They were teaching more like, if you have a patient with diabetes or sleep apnea, is weight important? You know, we, we kind of know that. What it wasn't teaching or, or testing was how do you take a, a obesity-focused history? What do you look for in examination? What about the physiology and the pathophysiology of obesity? nothing on pharmacotherapy, very little on bariatric education. The stuff that you and I spent our time day in and day out doing and talking about was not uh, being tested at all. We also found, Carly, that they were not using people first language, something we talk mm. about all the time, right? Yep. You know, the, the, the item on the exam would be of a 42-year-old obese man. So right. our, among our recommendations was use people first language, you know, a 42-year-old man with obesity, as an example, and to really spend much more time on genetics, physiology, pathophysiology, and communication regarding obesity. And I went on actually and joined the USMLE writing committee for a a year after that to write obesity items to try to make that change. So it's a work in progress, but we started, we want to do the top-down approach. So it's start at the top, what's being tested, and the subsequent things I've been working on since then is working my way down into actually curriculum development for medical students.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Because again, it's so important. And that's the big question is how do we get that in there? So kind of the stepwise process that you're going through to increase that. So kind of the next step was Probably in in 2017, when the OMEC competencies, the obesity medicine educational competencies uh, were released to create at least the standardized, this minimum level of obesity related education and training that healthcare professionals should receive, right? So there was over 20 different organizations and societies representing over a dozen different health professionals that were involved with developing these competencies and I know you are involved with this as well you are, I believe you were the chair of this so tell us a little bit more about the Omet competencies and and how you think that these can help us integrate more obesity education into the curriculum
1: right so to, to frame it in addition way just says we start at the top okay this is what needs to be taught and the next thing is is how do we how, how does a medical school know what should be taught regarding obesity so why not start with the content experts, which was the entire Omec family of not only physicians, by the way, but physician assistants, associates, nurse practitioners, mm-hmm. behavioralists, exercise physiologists, um, uh, lifestyle medicine specialists, all came together I- as working groups to develop competencies. So in ed- educate across many education platforms, we use competencies, right? That's the knowledge and behavior and attitudes you should acquire when you graduate. And we, we right. looked at the domains that medical schools use, which is called the ACGME. It's the Accredited Council for Graduate Medical Education. These domains are like practice-based learning, system-based practice, medical knowledge, professionalism. These are the domains. So we said we so we took common domains and said, what should medical students or nursing students, nurse practitioners or NPs, um, learn in school? And we came up with 32 Competency sounds like a lot, but when you put them into the domains, it's not. It's not a lot. So it covers everything. Like you should be able to perform an obesity-focused history, and then we outline what's in the history and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then we published this in 2019 as the OMIC competencies. So what is available now, at least since 2019, is that any professional school can download these competencies, which, by the way, can be found at obesitymedicine.org backslash OMIC. That's where you actually mm-hmm. get these or go to the document itself and get those 32 competencies. Now, what it doesn't do is build the curriculum in the actual school. Who's going to teach it? Should it be didactic? Should it be asynchronous? Should it be case-based learning? We didn't do that at the competency level, but at least it's a blueprint for what should my students know or if you're a resident or you're, you're in graduate training what should you be learning in order to perform competent, minimally competent obesity care?
0: Yeah. And so I was so excited when these OMET competencies came out. Uh, it was a big announcement. And I was like, great, now we have a really good roadmap for schools. But one of my questions at the time was, great, we have this roadmap. But now, you know, is there a curriculum that goes along with it? Because we know that there are not very many obesity medicine specialists. There's, uh, fortunately, more and more of us who are learning about the field of obesity medicine, getting board certified, physicians who are getting board certified. And for NPs and PAs who can't take the board exam, you know, there's uh, numerous certificate programs out there now through the Obesity Medicine Association, through AAPA. um, So, you know, we're able to to really get this education in obesity. Um, But, you know, there's a limited number of us, right? And there's so many patients. So, who's going to actually develop the curriculum and teach the curriculum because to me like that's the next step so <laughs> no surprise <laughs> you have been working on that next step so uh, recently there was an exciting announcement that that toss the obesity society announced that 10 medical schools have been selected to participate in a two year quality improvement project to refine, implement, and assess this competency-based obesity education curriculum called the Focus on Obesity Education, or the Forward Curriculum. So you were, again, the chair of the Project Steering Committee. Again, you're involved in all of this, and I love this stepwise progression. It's so amazing. So tell us a little bit about the forward curriculum, your involvement with it, and how you think that medical schools can use this, um, and medical schools, PA schools, NP schools, other schools can use this to enhance the education in obesity management.
1: Yeah, great! Thank you for bringing all this up. It's it's like my life all in a thirty minute podcast. Great. Just <laughs> um, uh, just to, just to reinsta- re- reframe what you just said, or to reinforce what you just said, um, we know it's taught. We know what the companies are. Uh, however, where are the champions, right, to actually teach and instruct students on obesity care? Where do you begin? And that was really the genesis of this forward. 10 school uh, quality improvement initiative. So it is fully funded by Novo Nordisk uh, as a medical grant to the Obesity Society. So that's how that actually goes. So Novo Nordisk is providing the support, which is completely um, uh, not guided by Novo Nordisk, but funded by Novo Nordisk. Uh, And we recruited 10 medical schools from across the country, from Howard University to the East to Loma Linda to the West. Uh, And these are schools that, by self-definition, have insufficient obesity education, but interested in moving forward and have the support of the the, uh, Dean of Education. So they all applied for it, um, and we now have recruited those 10 schools, and what we're going to develop is a collaborative approach to develop obesity curriculum and content in these 10 schools using a quality improvement initiative. So we're going to assess the school's coverage of obesity at year one. They're then going to implement it in year two, and we're going to look at the difference. The ultimate goal is to make these curriculum-based content in obesity freely available to all of the medical schools and other um, uh, schools that are teaching obesity that they can implement in their own curriculum uh, with data to support their use.
0: I love it. This is so great. I mean, it's just all coming full circle. Um, So I love, uh, thank you for all of your work on this. And this is something I'm so passionate about. And I actually found out about the Forward Curriculum because it was probably in January or something of this year where I was like, why don't we have this type of curriculum? And if it doesn't exist, maybe I should create it. So I started talking to AAPA and some other people and that's actually how I found out about the Forward Curriculum. They said, actually, somebody has already done this and here it is and here's the modules. And I looked at them and they're fantastic. So uh, really excited that this resource will be available, that it will be available for free. Um, very excited, especially after this QI project where we can really refine it and start implementing it in, in all kinds of medical schools, PA schools, NP schools, nursing schools, uh, other you know clinical programs. Uh, so it's fantastic, amazing to have this as a resource. All right. So we're going to switch gears away a little bit from all this education. Uh, but again, thank you so much for all of your work that you have done on this. So you have written a book, and I have it right here. I bought it as soon as it came out. Um, So you wrote this book with your wife, Nancy. It's called Six Factors to Fit, Weight Loss That Works for You. Uh, And you've developed also a scientifically validated quiz to go along with the book, kind of an assessment to see what people's styles are, right? And what what some of their struggles are. So can you tell us a little bit about this book and also how clinicians, because our audience is, is mostly clinicians, how they might be able to help their patients by using this book as a resource.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for bringing this up as well. So, this book came out just before the pandemic <laughs> at the end of 2019. And we, my wife and I, Nancy, are on WGN and all these different things. And the pandemic hit, and that was the end of the publication for it, but or the publicity for it. However, it is available. It is an approach that came out of clinical um, observation. That's why, Carly, you and I see patients, and we love learning from our patients is a perfect example of what you learn by seeing patients what i learned over all these years of seeing patients is that they were all telling me their stories right they're they if you probe enough and ask enough and you listen you hear stories and these stories started to kind of develop into clusters like i've heard this story before and you start developing patterns of of recognition or, or so forth so it is is an approach to use segmentation or client-specific treatment or phenotyping of patients based on either psychosocial or behavioral phenotypes that they present with. And we gave them names, such as the convenient diner. So this is someone who has, an, um, has e- eating convenient foods. Uh, they're not preparing a lot of foods on their own. And that's in part how they're Gaining weight or having difficulty losing weight, easily enticed eater would be another example. Someone who has the enticement of eating, never feeling full, um, um, uh, enticed to eat food around them, um, have difficulty controlling that. Fast pacer would be just another example. Someone who has so many things going on in their life, uh, they have difficulty um, finding time to take care of themselves. So the way the book works is someone starts off with an, a quiz that they take, self-directed quiz. So a, either a patient or an individual, him or herself, or a provider can very quickly score the quiz and segment the patient population that you're seeing into what are the most important issues they want to de- deal with based on their, their phenotype. And then the book actually then describes mostly behavioral, nutritional, dietary, and cognitive strategies to target those specific um, uh, issues. So just to give you an example... If, someone, if, if you see someone you start talking about, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables, right? Or you need to get more exercise. If, if you knew in advance, that's not their problem. Their problem is not getting more fruits and vegetables, exercising. The problem may be they're an all or nothing doer. They do it, and then when they fall off the wagon, they don't do it. It's called all or nothing, all or nothing doer. Yeah. The, the quiz allows you to quickly target what the actual issue is, and you can then use evidence-based strategies in order to help that patient.
0: I love it. So it's it's real personalized medicine. And for clinicians, you know, rather than trying to figure all this out on their own, or some clinicians just don't even have the time to dive into it and they just start talking and directing. And we know that that's not helpful because that might not be the issue that the patient's dealing with. So this is great. It really allows you to save a lot of time by understanding kind of what the issues are and then having evidence-based strategies for that particular issue that the patient is having. Uh, so we can really target that treatment and be much more effective rather than casting a huge white net and and perhaps discussing things that's like, well, that's not the patient's issue. Um, so I love that. I love that you have this available for, for anybody who wants to work on their health and their wellness and their weight. I think it's a great resource for clinicians to be able to use with their patients. We know that time is always a limited factor when we're seeing patients. So having anything that Kind of helps personalize it and gives patients tools that they can use at home too. They only retain so much of what we tell them in the clinic, right? So having a resource they can come back to, I think, is is really great. And then you also have an upcoming book geared towards clinicians, right? So it's called Patient Centered Weight Management, the Six Factor Professional Program and Toolkit. So I, I think this is coming up, right, in the future soon. So can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So to, so the, the purpose of the book, and you said it better than I even did, was to really develop an effective and efficient way that a clinician can very quickly identify the targets of, of change and get there. So the publisher is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, A&D. They actually came back to my wife and I and said, how about writing a professional manual for clinicians to use this approach. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're halfway through writing. It'll be out next year. So it's a manual for you and other clinicians who who want to use this approach as phenotypic identification or segmentation of how to guide a patient through that. So I hopefully will add all the resources and handouts uh, it has allowed me to do a deep dive into the literature on all of these phenotypes, to which it's just mm-hmm. the area is exploding. So yeah. the, the so not only will it give you the tools and strategies to use the book, but it'll also be very educational about things like diet and physical activity, self-critic, stigma, all-or-nothing thinking, and so forth. So it really will advance your own competency in order to provide obesity care to your patient.
0: Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much. So many great resources. Do you have any, you know, takeaways, top takeaways for clinicians who are, you know, interested already doing obesity medicine or interested in becoming involved with obesity medicine? And then lastly, also, can you tell us where people can learn more about the work that you're doing and learn more about Mm -hmm. the program and the six factors?
1: Well, sure. First, to become more, uh, 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 higher competency or educated. If you're a physician in obesity, I would encourage you to take the American Board of Obesity Medicine certification, become a diplomat, nearly 8,000 now. But you don't have to do that to provide competent and good obesity care. So jump in, it is becoming important. Patients want to get healthier. And in part of getting healthier, weight is a metric for that. So helping people lose weight. It is not as complicated and daunting as you may think. It really means good listening skills and learning more about lifestyle medicine and and the medications, which we didn't talk about. Where you can learn more about my work and others is go to my website, which is Dr. Robert Kushner. So it's drrobertkushner.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Again, a huge honor to have you on as the podcast. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all of the work that you have done. I could just see this beautiful sequence of work. And you've just identified the problem and come up with a solution every step of the way. So thank you so much for everything. you Oh, do. Th-
1: thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you for all the work you do as well, Carly.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Gaining Health podcast and for your commitment to learning more about how we can care for people with obesity in a compassionate and evidence-based way. If you'd like to learn more about Gaining Health and how we support clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program, please check us out online at gaininghealth.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with a friend or colleague and leave us a review. And lastly, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, even if it's just $5 a month, we would really appreciate it. And you can do so by clicking on our Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.